Well, good morning, Grace Baptist Church. My name is Matt Bennett, and I am pleased to get to serve as one of the elders here. Today, we're going to be continuing our work through the book of Matthew, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. So I'd invite you to take out your Bibles and to open there with me to Matthew chapter 11. Now, it is worth noting what Jim alerted us to, that this is Reformation Sunday, and one of the things that, uh, that we celebrate in that is something that you're bearing witness to even as you follow my instructions to open your Bible to Matthew 11. That is, what you're finding there is a language that you can read. And if that's the case, we have some reformers to thank for that. You're not reading Latin, but you are reading a language that you speak because those reformers were convinced that the Word of God needs to be accessed by the people of God as they seek to know and love and conform their lives to their Lord. So, we stand on the shoulders of giants who have gone before and who have invested much in order to bring us to a place where we are today. We should be grateful here at the beginning of this day. As we begin, I want to start by asking a question that I think will give some shape to some of what we see at the beginning of this chapter. That question is, have you ever been through a season of time in your life where you doubted everything that you thought you knew? For some of you, what comes to mind there might be a moment of sort of a midlife crisis where you woke up one morning and said, my goodness, I actually hate my career. Uh, for some of you, that may be that second semester in college where you all of a sudden came to the realization that all the accolades that you had accrued for your middle school soccer career are no longer going to suffice as your social credentials in this new setting. And for others of you, maybe like myself, it might have occurred when you found out what natural casing means on that package of bratwurst that you love so much. Things that cause you to doubt everything you thought you knew. <laughs> but for some of you, what came to mind, it might have been something a little deeper, something more stirring that represents a season of doubt where you started to ask, is my faith actually hollow? Is this whole God thing just a convenient myth that I've bought into and that's ultimately going to lead to nothing? Or is Jesus really, really who people have told me He is? Maybe for some of you that time of doubting was a long time in the past, but maybe for some of you it's actually right now today. I want to encourage you that even though these seasons might be dizzying and disorienting, what we're going to see in this passage today is that you're not the first person to have these questions or these doubts. You're not alone in your doubt, and these doubts don't phase Jesus. Our passage is going to speak to this today, and I, I pray that we're all going to come away not only seeing, but also sensing what I believe to be the big idea from this passage, and that is that knowing Jesus as King is sufficient to sustain our faith in all circumstances. This is a confidence that I hope we come away with today, but before we get to that confidence, we encounter somebody namely John the Baptist, who is in a crisis of his own faith. Jim just read for us the first six verses of Matthew 11 where we find John the Baptist awaiting his execution in prison, and in this nth hour, he's asking a question of Jesus. He says, are you the one 
or should we wait for another? Now, if you've been with us during this series, or if you're familiar with who John the Baptist is, that might stand as kind of a surprising reality. I mean, this is John the Baptist, a guy who literally, from within his mother's womb, knew that there was something special about Jesus. This is a guy who preached a message of repentance and the coming of the kingdom in the desert, and when he beheld Jesus, he said, this is the one. This is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And then when he baptized Jesus, he saw the heavens ripped open, the Spirit of God descending on this man and the booming voice of the Father saying, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. So we might find ourselves looking at John the Baptist in this situation and being like, John, are you kidding? Are you really doubting? Is it even possible given all that you've seen? Well, on the basis of his question, it appears that, yeah, it is possible. It does seem that John is doubting here, but in the midst of it, Jesus is not flustered. And we should take hope in that. We don't need to be embarrassed of John's question, even if it is a question we ourselves are asking. But like John, if we are questioning who Jesus is, we need to bring that question to Jesus and receive the very same assurance and comfort that Jesus extended to John through his answer. The way that John phrases his question might incline us to expect that Jesus is going to give a simple yes or no. I mean, it's a, it's a yes or no question, right? Are you the one? Circle yes or no. But what Jesus gives is actually a laundry list of his miracles. And what we find in this particular answer is that not only does Jesus give a confident yes, but he also shows the receipts. He, he gives proof that this is the one we're waiting for. And we hear this when we read Jesus' response through the lens of the Old Testament. Because we see that this list of miracles that Jesus has put in front of John is in fact his holistic, resounding, and multifaceted, yes, I'm the one, I'm the one you're waiting for. I am the one who is Emmanuel, who is God with us in your midst, righteous and able to save. Jesus' answer is echoing with Old Testament allusions, especially that come from the book of Isaiah. So why don't we look at a couple of passages that seem to be preparing us many years before this encounter to see what would happen when God showed up in our midst. We can consider Isaiah 35, 4 through 5, where we read, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap, leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Or again, in Isaiah 61, verses that Jesus himself would read when he shows up in the synagogue, we read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty for the captives and the opening of the prison for those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Do you hear the echoes of Isaiah in Jesus' answer? Isaiah was promising that in the day of God's kingdom breaking in, we would see the markings, the signs of the things 
that Jesus just listed he himself was doing. What John would have heard then in Jesus' response was the echoes of Isaiah mingling with the voice that he heard booming from heaven at Jesus' baptism, confirming, yes, this is the one. I'm making good on my promises. This is the day that I'm acting to fulfill my covenant in my beloved Son. But Jesus doesn't just give John this list of miracles as proof. He concludes with verse 6, in which he actually gives him a beatitude. And in some ways, it's a little strange. Beatitudes are what we covered in Matthew chapter 5, if you remember Jeremy walking us through these. And we get a final one here where it says, Blessed is he who is not offended by me. This word offended shows up in multiple places throughout Matthew's gospel, multiple important places, and it's a word that sometimes is translated offense, sometimes stumbling, sometimes falling away. It's used, for example, in Matthew 13 to describe the people of Nazareth after after they've seen Jesus' miracles, heard his teaching, and then turned away, falling away, being offended, stumbling over his message and rejecting him. Likewise, Jesus uses this word to describe in the Garden of Gethsemane what's going to happen to his disciples as they stumble, fall away, and are offended in the midst of his persecution. Peter, likewise, a couple verses later, uses these same words to say, oh, they might fall away, but I'm never going to do it. And if you know the end of the story, you know that in fact Peter does fall away. But for a minute here, doesn't it seem strange that Jesus would give this message to John at the end of a list of awesome things he's done for people? Why would he call John to not be offended in light of these miraculous works? Who would be tempted towards offense after all these awesome things that Jesus is doing for people? I think it's there for at least two reasons. The first reason is that it reminds us that these wonders that Jesus is talking about aren't just the magic tricks of a genie who's granting people their wishes. Rather, these wonders and miracles are signs pointing to the fact that in Jesus, God is doing those things that He said He would in the day that He would bring His kingdom. And when people saw these signs, it wasn't intended to be for their entertainment. And it wasn't even primarily to be for the alleviation of their momentary sufferings. I mean, if, if the signs were that, then this kingdom is still temporary because all those people who received those signs got sick again, died. They didn't receive anything unshakable. These signs are intended to call people to see that God has arrived in their midst and the proper response is repentance and belief. That's where some might be tempted to be offended and to fall away is that it's one thing to observe these miraculous signs, but it's another thing to see it as a call to repentance and to respond in kind. But second, I think there's a good reason that we might actually see John the Baptist specifically being offended when he hears about these signs and this evidence of Jesus' power. The reality is, Jesus hasn't chosen to use this power on behalf of John, to liberate him from his suffering. He recognizes in this message and in these signs that Jesus has total authority to do whatever he wants, and yet he's not using that authority, that power, to free John from his temporary suffering. 
So John hears about and sees these miracles as signs of Jesus' messianic identity, but he's not going to experience a miracle to fix his own circumstances. In fact, in this section, we see one aspect of our big idea on display. If you remember, I said the big idea for the passage is that knowing Jesus as our king is enough to sustain our faith in all circumstances. Well, one of those circumstances is when we see the sign, but we don't experience the miracle. Maybe, maybe as we've been working through this series, particularly thinking of Matthew 8 through 9, you've been sitting here and you've been seeing Jesus working in miraculous power to bring about healing and restoration of people's problems. And all the while, instead of wondering at Jesus, you find yourself wondering, well, why won't he do that for me? The people next to you seem to be content to see Jesus for who he is on the basis of these signs, but all you keep thinking is you're seeing a Jesus who's healing other people's sicknesses, but hasn't act to, acted to remove your cancer or to bring back your child who's wandering from the faith in the family or to provide that spouse that you've been longing for. Or maybe like me, you read Matthew chapter 9's account of a father who has lost a child, and you know the grief, and you know the brokenness and the heartache and hopelessness of that father. But instead of getting to celebrate a resurrection like that father did, you presided over a funeral and lowered a tiny casket into the ground. Maybe you felt like John must have felt sitting in that prison. He knew that others were experiencing God's miraculous intervention on their behalf, and yet he was left to suffer for testifying to the one who he knew also had the power to stop his own suffering. In fact, if we were to rub salt in the wound, consider what we saw in some of those verses we just quoted from Isaiah. Not only do they include the things that Jesus said he had already done, but they include confidence that God could free prisoners from, sin, from prison. He could release captives as he comes to save. So John must have known that Jesus could have saved him from his suffering. But he doesn't. Jesus doesn't stop John's present suffering. We are tempted to ask why. The reality is we, we don't have a verse from Jesus giving his explanation as to why he didn't spring John from prison in order to allow him to continue his ministry of calling people to repentance. We don't know. But the thing is, it's actually not surprising because as Jesus in the next coming chapters over the next few weeks, we're going to see that Jesus is increasingly going to tell us that though he is in fact the king who we've been waiting for, and though his eternal kingdom is being ushered in, the reality is that though we expect that to be a temporal salvation, it, it's a kingdom that's going to come through suffering before it comes in victory. John is going to remain in prison, and he's eventually going to be beheaded. We're going to see this in chapter 14. And again, he's going to serve as a forerunner of Jesus, showing us, foreshadowing that the same path of suffering is where Jesus is going to walk through the cross. In Jesus' answer to John then, John is called to faith, to see these signs 
as a way of awakening his confidence and his faith that Jesus is, in fact, the king that he's waiting for. Even if the kingdom isn't coming the way that he expects, that kingdom is worth any present suffering he might endure in order to achieve it. Family, some of you are here today and you're wondering why God hasn't acted in order to answer the prayers that you've been praying for relief. I want to, first of all, grieve with you the grief that comes along with suffering. But more than that, I want to point you to this very answer that John the Baptist got in the midst of his suffering. This answer that your king is in fact who he says he is. That Jesus is enough. And that whatever suffering you are carrying today is a suffering that he offers to carry with you. The same signs that John received are here before us today in this passage. And they're signs that invite us, just like they invited John, to place our faith in Jesus in exactly the same way. We need to remember that the miracles that we've seen and the miracles we might be asking for are not in and of themselves the kingdom. The miracles serve as signs pointing us to what the kingdom that is coming, that is unshakable and established through Christ's work on the cross and in the resurrection, that this eternal kingdom will be marked by the fact that sickness and suffering are not just temporally, but forever banished. It's a kingdom that has been won for us by a king who's walked the road of suffering before us and who offers to walk it with us. And I can give you testimony from my own life, and I can give you testimony from what John received in the text here, that it's enough. It is sufficient. As John's disciples depart in order to deliver Jesus' message to John, Jesus turns his attention to the crowds who've been overhearing this exchange, and he discusses their situation beginning in verse 7, if you'd read along with me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before him. If you look at your Bibles here, you may find that there's a footnote, and if you follow that to the margins or the footnotes, you're going to see that Jesus is here citing an Old Testament passage from Malachi 4.5. In Malachi 4.5, we see that this messenger who Jesus is talking about is Elijah, and that the appearance of Elijah will coincide with the arrival of of the day of the Lord, and that's going to be a day in which God is acting to fulfill His promises of both mercy and judgment to His people. Jesus here is telling them again in another way, these promises that you've been waiting for are coming true. He continues in verse 11, he says, "'Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he.'" It's worth pausing here again, especially if you're somebody who's here today doubting and wondering if Jesus disdains you in your doubt. It's worth pausing here to see that John the Baptist 
just expressed his nth hour doubt to Jesus, and yet Jesus turns to the crowd and speaks, speaks positively about him. He speaks of him as the best among the best. And he points to him as an example. So there's something to be seen here, that Jesus' doubt is not too much for Jesus, so neither is yours. But again, if you're here today and you're doubting, I'd encourage you, hear Jesus' answer to John for exactly what it is, assurance of his identity, a call that he calls us to in repentance, along with the assurance that he is able and willing to forgive and to lead us to his kingdom. Jesus finishes his comments then about John in verse 12. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now here we get a second perspective on our big idea for the day, and that is that knowing our king is enough to sustain our faith when we face opposition from the world. In this section, Jesus confirms that John the Baptist is the awaited Elijah. And if John is Elijah, that means that the kingdom of God is here, and God is making good on his promises. But this kingdom, as Jesus says here, will not come without resistance. Jesus says here that violence and suffering will attempt to stop its advance. And again, we're beginning to see that the way to victory in this kingdom is the way through suffering. John's ministry of preaching repentance and then suffering rejection and even imprisonment for it and then being executed, as we'll see in verse, chapter 14, is actually just a pattern for exactly what we're going to see in Jesus' ministry. Calling for repentance being rejected and despised, ultimately being crucified. Although unlike John, Jesus' death will not be the end of his ministry. But before we get there, we need to see how Jesus' message turns from John, the martyr, to the crowds who have seen the signs that John wasn't privy to, but who still walked away unchanged. In Matthew 16, Jesus begins to say, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Here Jesus grieves over the failure of many to respond appropriately to the king who is in their midst. 
In verse 20, we're given the explicit reason why. Because they did not repent. Even having seen the signs, they did not repent. This passage then again confirms for us that the purpose of Jesus' mighty works are more than just to put on display His power, but they are given to us to prompt repentance. They're signs that show the crowds that God has arrived in their midst. And when people who are stained by sin and guilt and unrighteousness find that their God has shown up in their midst, the only proper response is awe, worship, repentance, and belief. So this gives us a third perspective on our big idea that knowing Jesus as King is enough to sustain our faith even when he calls us to repentance by pointing out our sin. Chorazin and Bethsaida have seen the signs, yet they still refused to repent. They saw the king in their midst, but they treated him like a genie, having their bellies filled and having been entertained. They've gone away without repentance, without faith, and also without pardon. A sign is never as important as what it points to. Jesus' signs point to him as the one who is holy and righteous, but also as one who is merciful and gracious and who is willing to absolve the sins of those who would come to him and ask. Whether Jesus' followers are the ones whose formerly paralyzed legs suddenly allow them to walk, or whether like John, their legs will walk them to their execution, Jesus is telling them that he is enough and that their knowledge of this king should be sufficient to satisfy them. And that leads us into this final section of the chapter. Let's work through these well-known verses together. In Matthew eleven twenty-five, we see Jesus declaring, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus here again makes it clear that those who receive his kingdom, receive his pardon, are not those who have the right pedigree or those who by their own wisdom have figured out the way to, uh, to God, but rather they are those who see Jesus for who he is, who come to him in the confidence of children, seeing someone who loves them and who will care for them. These faithful ones are the ones that Jesus chooses to reveal himself and his Father to. And if you recall, and we think back to chapters 8 and 9, we see that those who are lauded for their faith look like fathers who've lost their daughters and who come to Jesus in desperate confidence that he can do something. They look like lepers who've been cast out of society and women who are impure and it looks like blind men come to see Jesus as the son of David and who know that a simple touch from him can solve their situation. And it looks like people who realize that despite their past, no matter how many sins or what kind of sins they've committed, this king is inviting them to repentance and belief that he would invite them into his kingdom. 
God has revealed what He's doing in Christ to those who come with childlike faith to see that Jesus is the one who is God's answer to the human sin problem. And he goes on in verse 27 to say, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Again, Jesus' ministry here comes in comfort for those who will receive it, but with a recognition of judgment for those who by their own self-righteousness preclude themselves from seeing what God is doing in front of them. Jesus assures us that no one knows the Father except by His merciful and gracious revelation of the Father. Jesus is then the prompter of faith and the gracious revealer of God, and He goes on to describe that in these well-known verses that begin in verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In these last beautiful and well-known verses of Matthew chapter 11, we get a glimpse of our final perspective on our big idea for the week. And that is, knowing Jesus as King is enough to sustain our faith and to ease our burdens as we follow Him towards eternal rest. These verses are what I like to refer to as closed-eye verses. What I mean by that is that for many of us who've been around the church for a long time, we can recite them with our eyes closed. But for others of us, when we start in on reading them, we can't help but find our eyes closing as we feel the comfort of these words washing over us, almost like a cat getting scratched at just the right spot and just allowing this word to speak peace to us. But I want us to pay attention here to what Jesus means when he says he's going to alleviate our burdens, what Jesus means when he says he's going to give us rest. Because we're often tempted to settle for a more shallow vision of what Jesus intends here than, than what he's saying. We see that by putting these verses on our coffee mugs and in so doing, imagining that what Jesus means here is that he's an old grandpa on a front porch inviting us to pull up a rocking chair and to pour a cup of coffee on an unhurried Saturday morning and just take a load off. That's, that is good rest. And those are good things, but Jesus is talking about something far more profound here than the rest that comes from uh, finishing a week with an overburdened schedule. Jesus is more concerned to alleviate the impossible weights that have been levied upon people who have been told by their religious leaders that it's, upon, it's on them to establish their own righteousness. Jesus is pointing to something that's more than just the alleviation of the suffering of sickness and death and worry and fear that we struggle with. Jesus is talking to people who've been told that it's their duty to save themselves or to yoke themselves with ultimately the impossible task of both achieving and maintaining their own holiness. Jesus calls us to come to Him to see that it is His royal mission to bear away the burden of our sin in our place and to yoke Himself to us in order to lead us into His eternal kingdom. If you're here today 
you find yourself under the impression that being a Christian or becoming a Christian means that you have to get yourself right and you need to set your life in order before you come to God. Please come find me or come find one of the elders who will be up front here after the service because on the one hand, I have really bad news for you and that's that you can't do that. It's impossible for you to get right enough to come to God. I also have really good news and it's the good news that Jesus holds out in front of us here that he is the one who has borne our burdens and he is the one who will extend his righteousness to us and all he calls you to do is to come to him to repent to place your faith in him and follow now for those of us who are here today as believers even if we find ourselves in a season of suffering or, or doubt we have the advantage of history that John didn't yet have in that we can look back at the cross of Jesus and see that he has walked this path of suffering that he's calling us to endure before us. There we see Jesus paving the way of the kingdom for us right through the valley of the shadow of death as he vicariously and in our place bears away the penalty, the burden, the shame, and the curse of our sin. We need to recall that Jesus doesn't stay dead, but rather he victoriously is raised from the dead in order to give to us God's glorious invitation to join Jesus in faith, to receive an eternal healing, forgiveness, and restoration that will not fade, in which we will not get sick again, in which we, there will be no death, in which will ultimately make any temporal suffering that we're enduring seem eternally insignificant. It's this eternal perspective that allows Jesus to tell his followers that despite the violence that will come against his kingdom's advance, his yoke is still easy. His burden is still light because as Paul will say elsewhere in the letter to the Corinthians, our present sufferings are light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that's prepared for us. Jesus can say these words to the man who received back his daughter from the dead in exactly the same way as he can say it to John the Baptist as he waits to give his head on Jesus' behalf. He can say this to the woman that he restores from a place of shame and separation in exactly the same way that he can say this to you today as your child walks farther away from God and from your family and you grieve. Or as your workplace becomes ever more hostile, or as your community shifts farther away from your worldview and is more and more antagonistic against the gospel, or even as your cancer gets worse and death approaches. In the middle of all of these sufferings, even in the times where God chooses not to intervene in this temporary moment, we have the same invitation. Take his burden upon you, for it's light. Yoke yourself to him and let him lead you into the kingdom. Let him bear you up under the burdens that he's borne in your place, because there's a kingdom ahead that cannot be shaken. As a church, over the past year and a half, two years, we have had the weighty privilege of seeing many of our senior saints provide for us a testimony of the sufficiency of knowing Jesus in the midst 
of walking towards the end of their days. I need, I think of so many of our members and the, the families, the Sheridans, the Hansons, the Bigelows, the Bates, and so many others who have walked their loved ones into glory. And as weighty and grief-filled as that is, they've been extended the privilege of hearing from those very loved ones the confident message that despite their suffering, Jesus has been enough. And Jesus with them is satisfying, even as death approaches. Friends, for us to walk with our King is enough to sustain us, even when our walk leads us through suffering. And that's because nothing that Jesus might ask you to do or to endure is heavier than which he has borne for you. This is what makes his burden light and his yoke easy. That he, our great shepherd king, will bear it with you because he's already borne it for you. So, in light of Matthew chapter 11, then as we close, we see that Matthew helps us to say in confidence that knowing Jesus as king is enough to sustain our faith in all circumstances. When we see the sign but don't get to experience the miracle, when we face opposition from the world, when he shows us our sin and calls us to repentance, all that is because this king has borne our burden for us and he will bear them with us. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are faithful and you are kind. Thank you for your word in which we see Jesus, the word become flesh, who's not only here to demonstrate how great you are, how pure and holy you are, but also how merciful and just you are. Thank you for his bearing away of our guilt at Calvary. Thank you for the hope that comes from his empty tomb, his ascension to serve as our great high priest, pleading his own blood on our behalf that we might be adopted sons and daughters. Father, would that fact be the thing that we look to as we see our burdens and the weight of our days? Would we take confidence in the fact that our King will bear us up because he's already borne all of our burden? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.